Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. We are currently celebrating the Advent season together as a church, remembering the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of God's promise and prophecies. We pause to reflect on His arrival and long for His glorious return. I just want to ask the question, is He worthy? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited to share with you this morning uh, on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, I'm Alan McBrayer, the executive pastor here at the Bayou City Tomball campus. And uh, it's been a great time, a great season of Advent as we've thought about the hope that Jesus brings and we thought about his peace. And last Sunday, we heard about the joy that he brings. And then today, we're going to think also about the love that he brings as we've already heard. It's kind of an interesting thing when you hear someone else's story. And we've been following the story of Zechariah, a priest in Israel, and his wife Elizabeth, who were able to have a child when they were much too old to have a child. And then the story of Mary, a humble servant of God. And then today, we're going to see the culmination of all of that. But we're going to talk about two people who are faithful people. Now, I'm just going to say to you, being faithful doesn't sound all that exciting. It kind of sounds boring, in fact. There was a time in my life when I wasn't really considered that, so for me, being faithful was kind of an upgrade to way, the way I was. <clears throat> and so today, I still value that characteristic very highly. And the question may come, what, what does faithfulness have to do with love that Jesus brings? And I just want to say that in Jesus, the faithfulness and the love of God collide in Jesus. Because Jesus was the answer to God's faithfulness that he would do something for Israel and for the world that he promised long ago. This morning, we're going to read from Luke 1, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. But we're just going to start going through the first few verses through verse 66. So if you have your Bible with you or a device that you can look it up on, let's read this together. Luke 1, 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet, because he couldn't talk at this point, and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of this couple, this aged couple. We thank you for their life, Lord, that demonstrates the faithfulness that you have because they were faithful to you as well. Lord, we ask you this morning that your word would sink deeply into our hearts, that it would take root, and that it would change our lives Give us ears to hear, and give us feet and hands to be willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So this morning, the title of the message is The Legacy of Faithfulness. The Legacy of Faithfulness. Uh, Sometimes these are the kind of messages you hear on Father's Day or Mother's Day. Uh, Sometimes you hear it at the end of a person's life. But I want to encourage you right now to not think of legacy as something that happens after you're gone. I want you to think of legacy as something that is happening right now in your life. It is your influence that you are having on people every single day. And what you do today will matter for what happens every day after this. And so now is the day that we build our legacy. Zechariah's legacy, to show you the value of it, had three huge results. First of all, and we'll talk about these, prayer was answered. Prayer was answered. And then, secondly, God was praised. But last and not least, the torch of faithfulness was passed. And this is what we want to see in our lives. We want to see God answering prayer. We want to see praise coming out of our lives naturally or spiritually, as it were. And we want to see ourselves be able to impact those around us, even and especially the next generation. There's a song that's been out for a year or so by Stephanie Gretzinger that captures this idea well. And I love this song. Many words, but it says this in the first verse. Let my children tell their children, let this be their memory, that all my treasure was in heaven, and you were everything to me. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. And when I'm old and gray and all my days are numbered on the earth, let it be known in you alone my joy was found. That's what I hope our kids remember about me. That's what I hope our grandkids remember about me is that all of my joy was found in Jesus, that all of my treasure was in Jesus. And I can say that that is exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth were hoping for is that the Messiah would come in their lifetime. And they were looking forward to the Messiah coming. And their treasure literally as Israelites was in the fact that the Messiah would come and deliver them and bring all of the things that had been promised. But I want you to notice how this works out. First of all, in Zechariah's life, prayer was answered. This was just an average guy. Now, he was a priest. You know, he was a holy man. But Zechariah, as a priest in that day, he didn't get a lot of fame. There were about 18,000 priests at that time. A couple of times a year, they got to go into the temple and serve and minister to God. But this particular year, Zechariah got a special gift from God. He was chosen by lot through a roll of the dice, so to speak, he was chosen to be able to offer incense in the Holy of Holies to God. That was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, even though he was an average guy, he wasn't average in this sense. He was actually said by God, as we heard about three weeks ago, he was called, along with his wife Elizabeth, in 1-6, He was righteous in God's sight, living without blame. Righteous in God's sight, living without blame. You know what that meant? That meant he was just a faithful priest. He did what God said with no fanfare. He just did the last thing that God called him to do, and he kept doing that. 
Nothing special, nothing big, but now he got this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And here's what happened. As he was offering that incense in the Holy of Holies, God said this through the angel Gabriel. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Well, now that was pretty amazing because they were both, as I said, past the childbearing years. Probably there was a time when both Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed regularly for a son. But day after day, week after week, year after year went by, and no son ever came. And so maybe they switched their prayer to, well, we'll pray for the Messiah to come to someone. And then who knows what they were praying, but at some point, I believe as a good Jewish person, they were praying that the Messiah would literally come in their lifetime. And that's what they were praying for. But here's what Gabriel said from the throne of God. He said, your prayer for a son has been heard. Now, I've thought about this, and I don't know if you ever analyze your prayers. I mean, it kind of sounds weird, okay? But I think about my prayers a lot. And I'm praying for something, and God makes many promises about answering prayer. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he didn't answer that prayer. And then something happens, and I think, wait a minute. He did answer that prayer. But he didn't actually answer the prayer that I was actually praying He answered the prayer that was deep down in my heart that I really wanted to ask, but I had quit asking that because I just thought, that can't happen. I think this is what happened to them. I'm speculating completely, so don't take this to the bank or whatever. Uh, But I believe that God answered that long-time prayer that they had quit praying because they just thought it wasn't going to happen. And what this says to me is this is that when we are praying for something, keep on praying with persevering prayer. You say it's never going to happen. Never say never with God. In fact, it's what one guy, William Hendricks, who's the son of Howard Hendricks, who is is passed on many years ago. But William Hendricks wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel And in that commentary, it was really a commentary during the the Promise Keepers movement, and it was written to men, although it applies to everyone, and he talked about the push prayer. You may not have heard of this, but I love this. It's always stuck with me. Pray until something happens. Pray until something happens. That's changed my life, seriously, ever since then. It's like, God didn't say I could quit praying for that, so I'm going to keep praying for this. You know, it's really hard to keep praying prayers that you don't think are going to happen. It's so easy to give up on praying those prayers, but God will answer those prayers. I was 28 when I got married. That was ancient back in 1977, okay? Now it would be 38, so just do the math, okay? So here's the thing. I was 28 years old, and I really wanted to be married. I'd been wanting to be married since I was like in my early 20s, 21, 22 years old. You know, I mean, God had changed my life when I was 22, and I was walking with him. I wasn't perfect, but I was walking with him, and I was serving him, but I really wanted a wife. And that's very normal. Nothing wrong with that. 
And it made it easier because I had two other friends that were really good friends that I graduated with from high school who also were walking with the Lord and were also single. Ted Kitchens, who was the area director for Young Life in Fort Worth, and Chuck Bettinger, who was one of my best friends that uh, we had done so many things together and, and ministry things and just so many things. And at 25, Ted met Lynn from Chicago at a Young Life camp. And he got married the next year, 26 years old. There's one domino that fell. And then the next year, at 26 years old, Chuck renewed his high school sweetheart relationship with Sally, and they got married. And at 27, I was the lone survivor. Uh, maybe it'd be better to say the last survivor, okay? Because I wanted to be married, and now I was the only one of the three that was not married yet. I mean, I had plenty of girls that I went out with, but I never found the right one. It's like, God, what's going on here? But I kept praying, and one night, one night, I got beside my bed. Sounds really dramatic, but it's just the way it happened. I got beside my bed, and I said, God, I'm willing to be single the rest of my life and serve you if that's what you want. Within a month, as you know the story goes, it doesn't always happen this way, so this is not a gimmick, okay? But within a month, Sarah came back into my life. We had known each other before she went off to college, and I'd always been interested in her, and she came back into my life, and within a month, we were dating. Within two or three months, we were engaged, and within six or seven months, we were married. You know, God answered my prayer. My prayer was to get married, but I finally gave that one up. My real prayer was I would be in the center of God's will. And God answered that prayer. When I gave up all of my, so to speak, rights to being a married man, God said, well, now I'm ready to give you that gift. And that's what God does in our lives. When we surrender it, he gives us that prayer. The one that we really want, no matter what you think that is, he will show you that he is answering that prayer when you're pursuing him. So prayer was answered. See, here's the thing. Zechariah prayed. That was the easy part, really. The hard part was what God did, which was the answer to the prayer. And God's part was this. He caused a baby to be born, a woman that was probably in her 60s carrying a child for nine months, and the baby was born. Who could have imagined that they would have a baby? Certainly not Zechariah because he doubted what Gabriel said to him, and for that reason he couldn't talk for nine months. But this is how God works. He does unexpected things in our lives to answer these prayers so that he's the one who actually gets the glory, and he gets it at the perfect time. In verse 57, it says, when the time had come. But literally what this is in the original language is when the time was fulfilled. There was a perfect time for this baby to be born because this baby wasn't just some baby. This baby related to the Messiah, this was the baby that would be born that would prepare the way. But it took time for this to happen. The time was not fulfilled because it was 40 weeks of pregnancy. The time was fulfilled because it was God's perfect time. The element of time is always part of God's plan for us. I hate to deliver that news to you because we hate that, don't we? It's like, I don't want to wait. No, none of us like to wait. But God uses the element of time. The Jews had waited for 400 years for a prophet to speak again. 
They had waited a thousand years for the son of David, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. Galatians 4.4 tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. God's got the perfect time. And even though they waited for nine months, it was even more painful for Zechariah because he couldn't talk the whole time. That was probably fairly pleasant for Elizabeth, but it wasn't very pleasant for Zechariah. He couldn't talk about this. But finally that time came, and John, the son, was born. It says then in 59 through 67 that Zechariah did something that seems sort of minor on the surface, but Zechariah obeyed God. Zechariah obeyed God. Now, what was the point of obedience? We read it already. The point of obedience was that his name would be John. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, really not that big of a deal is made out of the name in the New Testament. But the name John means God's gracious gift. And literally, John was God's gracious gift, not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but he was God's gracious gift to the Messiah, Jesus, who would follow. He was God's gracious gift to his kingdom. But the really important part is not that he obeyed that, but that he obeyed period, because it didn't seem that big of a deal. But it was against the custom that he would actually name him a different name than his dad or himself. The father and the grandfather typically would be the naming of the child. And so all the people around, for eight days, because he didn't get his name until the eighth day, just like Jesus, which again was against custom, by the eighth day, they had been calling him Little Zechariah for eight days, right? Whatever that nickname might have been. But they were all used to calling him this. And you know the pressure, parents, when you're trying to name a child and everybody wants to weigh in on what your child is going to be called, right? It's none of their business, all right? Just get that in your head. But the truth is, everybody wants to call him something. But here's what Elizabeth said. No, he's going to be called John. And I think this is really chauvinistic on their part. This is really a put down. They said, okay, dad, come over here. Is that really right? It's like, that's not the way you're supposed to do things. But they asked John, I mean, they asked Zechariah, and he said firmly, not his name will be called John, but his name is John. His name is John. And so this little boy, this little baby, had a very important name, But the most important part was that Zechariah obeyed God. And it just brought to my mind this thought that minor points of obedience are just as important as the major ones. Because those minor points of obedience show how much we love and respect God. The big things, we can say, oh yeah, I did that big thing. But these little bitty things, nobody's really going to know. Nobody's going to care. But you care because God said to do it. And we see that throughout the Bible. And so because he believed and obeyed, Zechariah's mouth was suddenly loose. And I want you to notice what happened. He was able to speak. Then all fell upon everyone. It says then that continuous praise erupted. The story was retold among many of them about what happened. And many pondered that event. And it led to this question. What then will that child be? And we know who John, their child, was going to be. He was going to be the one that prepared the way of the Messiah. So by the very fact that Zechariah obeyed, at this point, 
people begin to ask, who's this child going to be? Maybe God is doing something special in our time. Maybe we ought to start listening. And Zechariah did exactly what God did. And what is so cool about it to me is that Zechariah blew it nine months earlier. Zechariah had not obeyed God. He had not believed God. And now nine months later, God gave him another chance to get it right. And isn't this the way God works? He always gives us another chance to get it right. And so this is what happened. He got it right this time, and it led to many people being softened so that they would receive that message. God's hand, it says, was with Zechariah. And that leads to the second point of his legacy of faithfulness, and that is that God is praised. When we are faithful to God, not only is prayer answered, but also God is praised. The word praised means to be well spoken of. When we speak well of God, it's really good for people to hear that, especially when it comes out of a heart of true willingness and genuineness. And it said these things as we look at 67 through 73. Let's read these verses. It says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. This praise that he gave to God was very substantial. Just to list it out and think briefly about it, it said that God had visited his people God had come down to remember his covenant with them. He had redeemed them. And notice, this is like already like it's happened in the past, but it hasn't actually happened yet. He's going to give the baby to to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then Jesus is going to be born, and Jesus is the one that this is all said about. But it's already such an accomplished fact because God has promised it that it's like it's already happened. So he says, he's visited his people, he's redeemed them, he's raised up a horn of salvation. This is about the Messiah, not John. He's the one that's going to bring salvation, the Messiah. It was Jesus and not Savior, uh, not Caesar who was called the Savior of the world, even though that's a title that Caesar loved for himself. But Jesus was really that Savior of the world. It says he is the one who would fulfill the ancient prophecies. There are over 400 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and will fulfill when he comes back. But there were eight specific prophecies that were given about Jesus in his birth that he fulfilled. He was called the offspring of Abraham. He was called the scepter of Judah, the star of Jacob, the son of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He was called out of Egypt. And he was called a Nazarene. Eight prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, I would say none of which that he could actually manipulate. It had to just happen. God fulfilled the prophecies. Now, here's what's really significant about that from an apologetic standpoint. If you're defending Christianity as the truth, the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled 
is 10 to the 17th power. 10 with 17 zeros that follow that. Now, here's another way of looking at it. If you were to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars, every inch of it, and they were two feet high, and you put a mark on one of them, if you ask a blind man to find that one silver dollar, that's what the odds would be like. But Jesus fulfilled all eight prophecies in his verse, in, in his birth. That is a fact. And so it shows that he really is who God said he was going to be. And then it goes on to say that he was the one who gave salvation from the enemies and all who hate us. He has mercifully remembered his covenant with Abraham. So when you're thinking that God is not really paying attention in your life, that God has really forgotten you, no, he has continued to remember the promises, the covenant that he has made with you. He doesn't forget what he's going to do, and that's worthy of praise. Let me encourage you with the spiritual discipline, not just the overflow of gratitude in your life, but with the spiritual discipline of gratitude in your life. I fight with this one all the time. I'm just going to be honest with you. I tend to grumble a lot when I drive, okay? Uh, I tend to grumble about a lot of things. I'm saying, stop that, you know, and I was like, want to hit myself and say, say, stop that, okay? But I tend to do that, and I'm reminded that thanksgiving and praise, we're commanded to do this in the Scripture, and there's so many things to be thankful for, and when you are thankful, it reminds you that God is still at work in your life, and he is taking care of you. Some of you may have the commentary by Matthew Henry in your on your bookshelf, in your study, or wherever you read the Bible and study the Bible. Matthew Henry was an old commentator, and he had this story that he recounted in his journal. He said that a man once stole my wallet. And in reflecting on that incident, here's what Matthew Henry said. I am thankful that he never robbed me before. I am thankful that although he took my wallet, he did not take my life. Although he took all that I had, it was not much, and I am glad that it was I who was robbed, not I who did the robbing. You see, there's always something that you can be thankful to God for. It's all about intentionality and focus. Are you going to dwell on the things that you don't have? Are you going to be aware and cognizant of what God has given you, what he has blessed you with? Are you going to focus on the health that you do have, not on the health that you don't have? Are you going to focus on the relationships that God has given you? Are you going to focus on the ones that you wish you had? It's all about our focus and our intentionality. We need to be willing to thank God for everything Because this is the way God is. And this is where his love and his faithfulness come together. Because God is so good to us and so faithful to us, we're able to understand how great his love is for us. But praise also, these verses tell us, has a purpose. It says this praise is so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. When we praise God, what it does is posture our hearts to be willing to serve God gladly and willingly without fear. Not worried about those who might hate on us, who hate on God, but God does this for us so that we can bless others as we bless Him with that praise. 
we have a 2012 Honda CRV. We love that car. We really do. It's been a fantastic car. It's got 141,000 miles on it now, not that I'm counting. Um, it's got 141,000 miles, but this has been a terrible year for our car. It's been a terrible year. I can't even tell you how much money we spent. I don't even want to look at the number. I really don't, you know, so I'm just not even going to think about that. But here's the deal. We kept taking it to a mechanic that we trusted, and I still trust him. I just don't think he knows what he's doing. Uh, <clears throat> he kept guessing about what was wrong. He had guessed, and it wouldn't fix it. He had guessed, and it wouldn't fix it. And then, according to God's providence, and we'll give God the credit for this, we had a lug nut that got stripped off on the post of one of our wheels by discount tire. And so, as they do, they took care of that. They sent us to a mechanic to fix it at no charge to us. We went to the mechanic, and I said, hey, I've got this vibration in my car. Had a lot of work done on it, hadn't fixed it yet. It's a vibration when I hit 40 miles an hour, it vibrates. When I hit 60 miles an hour, it vibrates. When I hit eight, no, that's it. Uh, 60 miles an hour, it vibrates. And I said, do you have any idea? And he said, yeah, I've got a pretty good idea what it is. I said, okay, well, why don't you look at it and let me know. He fixed it. I'm not going to tell you what it was. He fixed it, though. Now we love the car again. Okay, so like this is great. You know what? Every time now that I hear somebody talking about a car issue, I want to tell them about this mechanic. I really do. I want them to know this guy can fix it. He's reasonable. Their, their shop floor is totally clean. I mean, I say everything about it that I can. I love talking about this. It's because when something good happens to us, we want to tell others. Because there's something about praising that actually completes the whole experience. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said in this quote, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till is expressed. In other words, when we praise people or things or God, it makes the experience even fuller because we got to share that with someone. And that's what Zechariah did. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he praised God. So not only was his prayer answered and God was praised, but last, notice, the torch is passed. In 76 through 80, it says this, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. The torch is passed. This says, first of all, that God uses people. It is true that God doesn't need us. It is true that God could do everything that we do without us, everything that we do for him. But the reality is that God's preference is to use people. God's preference is to use people. And so it's easy to get passive and just say, Well, God will take care of that, but guess what? God may be wanting to use you to take care of that. 
76, verse 76 says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high and go before him to prepare his ways. Jesus was the son of God. Why would you need someone to go before you to prepare your way? But this is how God worked. John the Baptist was going to be the one that would go before to prepare the way. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the ways of the Lord. God was going to use John to do that very preparation thing for Jesus. Notice this. He doesn't need to use John, but he did use John. Also notice this, that he started with a child. Throughout the Bible, God starts with children to change the world many times. It takes quite a few years. But he did this. When each one of these children were born, Samuel was a good example of that. Noah was a good example of that. Then, of course, John. And then Jesus. When he starts with his child, he then prepares that child all of their life. But what this says to me is, don't look at any stage in your life or in the life of your kids as being not that important. Children can change the world. And children, if you're here in the service, you can change the world. Teenagers, you can change the world. Young adults, God can use you to change the world. Don't wait till you're 40 plus years old to begin to do something for God. In fact, most of the great revivals and movements of Christianity in history have happened with people that were under 40 and even more under 30. And Jesus was 30 years old when God used him. And this is what God does. He works with us at every stage of life. The other thing it says to me is that God uses insignificant people to change the world. I mean, look at this. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were totally not famous. John? I mean, come on, you read about John. He was a weirdo. Okay, I mean, he lived in the wilderness. He had a camel hair coat, kind of sounds cool. He had a, a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. You probably wouldn't want him to breathe on you, right? I'm just thinking, okay? But, but the reality, the truth is, God used John to prepare the way for the Messiah. The biggest event in history, God used nobodies. Francis Schaeffer who was a Christian philosopher of the last century, wrote a book called No Little People. And he had read all the great philosophers in history, and his point was God uses insignificant people. There are no little people with God. So God uses people, even insignificant people. And think of this. We have a purpose when he uses us. John's purpose, as we read, was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, it's interesting how he did this. He prepared the way for the Messiah by preaching a message of repentance. That wouldn't have made him the most popular guy in the world, right? Because when you're telling somebody they need to repent, they need to turn or burn, they're going to kind of walk away from you. (laughs) They're definitely going to turn, okay? They're going to get away from you as fast as they can. But God blessed John so much with this message that people streamed to him out in the desert, out in the wilderness. They needed to hear this. And this is the same message that God gives to us, that not only are we to repent, 
but also that when we do, the sunrise from on high, the dawn from on high will rise on us and shine on those who are in darkness and in the shadow of death and lead them into the way of peace. That's the same message that he gives to us. Help people see where they are and help them to see where God wants to take them. God wants to take them into the light and the life and the way of peace. That's what God wants to do. And that's how he wanted to use John. But notice this last, that preparation was required. Always in the Bible, preparation is required. Some people didn't do it very well in the Old Testament. Samson's a good example of that. He didn't really get prepared all that well. But many of them, like Samuel in the Old Testament, when he was in the house of Eli, he learned to hear the voice of God. Here I am. Speak, for your servant is listening. He learned how to do that. In the same way, John was prepared. Kind of an unusual preparation. At some point in his life, he began to live out in the wilderness, out in the desert. He was, like my generation would say, Jeremiah Johnson, okay? He was just an outdoorsman, a guy that was out there, just him and God, and he was learning the ways of God, learning how God wanted to use him. That's what he was doing. He was learning that he didn't need to depend on man's approval. He only needed to depend on God. He didn't need to depend on his ability to get money or food or anything for himself. He depended on God. And then when that time came for him to be used, he was in the wilderness where Jesus also was going to come to be baptized by him. Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. Israel went through 40 years in the wilderness. And God called his people out of that wilderness experience. He called them to be used by him. That's not a great experience if you've been through a wilderness experience. But the simple truth is that God uses every situation in our lives to either do ministry or to prepare us for ministry. He uses every situation in our life to either do ministry or prepare us for ministry. This is what God did through Jesus. He took 12 disciples for three years, and he prepared them so that when he went back to heaven, they would be able to carry on that task of discipleship. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2 to Timothy, the things, Timothy, that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the process of discipleship that Jesus started was carried on, and we all need that prep time with the Father. Sometimes it's time that's not very fun. Sometimes it's a lot of fun, but God uses both of those. Sometimes we don't get it right, just like the disciples didn't get it right a lot of the time. But the truth is that God still uses us, and sometimes it's the very difficult times, the times that we don't get it right, that do more to prepare us for ministry to other people, the struggles that we have so that we can empathize with the struggles that they have, it's that part that God actually uses. As the founder of AA, Bill W., said, in God's economy, nothing is wasted. Through failure, we learn a lesson in humility, which is probably needed, painful though it is. When we learn humility or dependence on God, then God is able to use us. So in his economy, there's no experience of our life that is wasted. And so the question is today, 
What legacy are you building? What legacy are you going to leave behind you today for somebody to grow in, for somebody to learn from, for somebody to be inspired and challenged to step up? What will that legacy be? I know this. The legacy will only be good if today you are building that legacy. You can't wait till some time in the future when that begins to happen. But right now, today, is when you have to make the commitment, I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to do the last thing that God told me to do until he tells me something different. And then when he tells me the next thing, that's what I'm going to do then. That's what faithfulness is all about. When you see what God did, this is how God operates. God makes promises to us. And when God makes the promise, he always fulfills it in his time. And so God wants us to respond in the same way by committing to follow him one step at a time. This is what he did with Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is what he did with John. And this is what he wants to do with us. So will you make that commitment today? We're going to enter into a time of communion now. And in communion, I was just thinking about how this connects with what we've been talking about. By the way, if you need uh, a communion cup, there will be people up and down the aisle that can give you one of those if you didn't get one when you came in. But as we enter into communion, it's really about the faithfulness of God. This fourth Advent candle is about the love of Jesus that he brought. God was so faithful that he sent his only son, Jesus, to become a sacrifice for our sins, that we could receive forgiveness, and so that we would be able to have life eternally with him. And so today, as you take communion, I want you to ask yourself, and I want to ask myself, am I willing to be committed to Jesus? Am I willing to respond to what he did for me in his faithfulness? Am I willing to respond to him in the same way? You know, when we take the bread, we are taking that which symbolizes the life that Jesus gave for us. And when we take the cup, that blood that was poured out symbolized for us That's the blood that paid for our forgiveness of sins. And so I want us to bow our heads for a few moments and just you and God get together and you talk about where you need to recommit your life. You may be 99% there. You may be 90% there. But it's that one point of obedience that you're leaving out that God wants to deal with you on. It's that one point of faith where God wants you to trust him so that he can do that work in your life. So let's take a few moments, and let's just pray to ourselves silently, and then we'll take the communion elements.
Lord Jesus, we just want to say thank you for your sacrifice for us. We know, Lord, that we could never be faithful to you unless you gave us that ability to be faithful. And so we depend on you right now, Lord. We want to just lay our lives down before you and say, Lord, help us. Take us and use us, Lord, according to your will. We want to say we can't do it. Our will to sin is so strong and to self is so strong that we will always mess it up. But Lord, we know that you came to die for those sins, to set us free from the penalty and the power of those sins, Lord, so that we could serve you by your spirit. Lord, I pray that right now you would receive these prayers of confession and commitment, Lord, and that you would help us to serve you in some small measure, Lord, of the way that you serve us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.